episode 72 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show is Braden Coetz, co-founder of Range and former design partner at Google Ventures. We're going to talk about the delicate art of the design critique. Braden, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Oh, this is great. Uh, would you like to give me a critique of that intro? Or uh, <laughs> do, we, do we not have enough candor yet for you to feel <laughs> no, safe? No, that sounded really good. Your mellow tones are really, really hitting all the podcast notes. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, design critique. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this uh, because we have experienced them together in our past. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have at Google. Yeah, I think that was 10 years ago now at least. I'm feeling old. Yeah, no, I know. It was a long time ago. It was a, uh, it was a period of um, tremendous growth for Google. I think I've mentioned yeah. this on the on the podcast before. When I got there, uh, there was something like forty five hundred employees, and I left, and it was getting close to twenty thousand. And that was only in three and a half years or something like that. So, mm-hmm. and I recall it was just around the time that design teams were starting to be teams yeah. at the company. Yeah, that it, it used to be that like products would have individual designers, and all the designers would kind of scatter to the winds with one one person per product and we were just kind of getting to the point where there was two three four people working together on the same product and then it was time to start learning how to do critique and really work together in a different way that's right um, and we were working on some of the newest products at google uh you know for the, with the google apps like uh gmail and calendar and blogger and and stuff like that and and google reader which I dearly uh, miss. Forget. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, all of those apps. Um, and for the first time at Google, like, well, how would all of these apps work together? And, um, and how do we sort of build up a common vocabulary and understanding, not just by the people doing the design, but the engineering and, and uh, product management as well. So um, a lot of learning there. Yeah. 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 That was good. Um, you, after that, uh, you went to uh, Google Ventures as a design partner. That's right. Yeah. It was um it was sort of a, a lucky a lucky break for me to just kind of uh, when I was ready to to leave Google to land someplace with, sort of in the sidecar of Google where I got to see a bunch of different startups and see how they work um, and it was about the same time that startups were just understanding the power of design and mm-hmm. I, and through that my time there I got to see them again go from maybe a single designer at a company to multiple designers and really having a team learn how to work together that was partly because. Google Ventures started with small investments and then ended up, you know, like many venture funds starting to invest in larger and larger companies that have larger teams, but also design just becoming more mature as an industry. Yeah, I, it feels like, and, and I don't even know if this is cliche now or not, but really the rise of Apple into the like daily consciousness of everybody on the planet sort of coincided yeah. with like, well, why is that? Oh, it's a better user experience. Oh, and this is all happening around 2009, 2010, it feels like. Yes, that's that was exactly how I felt as well. Design or founders were thinking, "Oh, that Apple thing that really worked for them. We need design." But fundamentally, they they didn't know what design was or how, what it would take to build a team to deliver the experience that that they wanted to to win in the market. So that's what we helped a lot of the early founders with understanding through design sprints and some other things what design was, but also giving them realistic expectations of what kind of team you would have to create in order to get the design that you want. Uh, Many yeah. of them would say, I want Apple level design, which designer should I hire? Right. If it could chuckle, you're going to need a couple. Yeah. 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 And you know, the conversation about fundamental changes to product strategy to get there or even business strategy to get to That's what right. you achieve or what you perceive as this beautiful, clean design. That's right. 
I still have the title design partner. I'm doing that um, every day. Uh, and one of the, the fundamental questions I get at the beginning of a relationship with a new startup is, uh, Hey, could you look at this and tell us if it's good or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure you face that quite a bit too in that role. Um, and I I do, it reminds, it reminds me of design competitions actually, uh, (laughs) which is essentially the same question. Is this design good or not? Right. And I sort of have an unpopular opinion that design competitions are, are really no good because you, you fundamentally don't know any of the constraints of the team. You don't know anything about their business or their customers. So it's very difficult to know if a design worked or not. And the same thing exists in that simple question from a founder, is this design any good? And they just show a quick, a quick screen. But surprisingly, that also happens in the world of critique. Designers will walk in, show one screen on the, on the slide and ask a room full of very different people with very different backgrounds, hey, is this design any good? And you know, I think you and I have the hesitation to stop and go, well, what are we really talking about right. here? What is good? What kind of feedback is helpful? But not every room knows how to, how to engage with that question. Um, and that's where I think a lot of designers run into challenges. There is, I think, uh, design, or let's just say like the interface design or something, uh, to, to sort of narrow it down, is a thing people believe that they have opinions about. It's right without, uh, notably without the ability to actually create it. And it reminds yeah. me a lot of music. For example, I could hmm. play you a piece of music and say, what do you think? And you would probably have opinions like, oh, I'm not really into that kind of jazz or, you know, something like that. Um, but without, without the, you know, the vocabulary or the understanding of what goes into actually making and performing it. And I found that happens a lot in the design world too. It's like, Oh no no no! I don't like that. I don't really like purple things. You know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, people will have a response to it uh, without an understanding of well, like you were saying, what the questions really should be and what we should be trying to achieve in the conversation. It's interesting. I I, I wonder how much the world the world of language plays into this because because writing is another topic like that yeah. as well, where it's actually more accessible. Almost everyone writes, but we often don't have a language the, to to talk about the different parts of writing. Journalists do and writers do, mm-hmm. but that language is, is, is kind of limited to those disciplines where in the world of, of interfaces, I feel like lots of people know what a button is or a nav is or a color is. They have a lot of the language that you could use to start a critique, not all of it. But I, I think that probably gives people a little bit more permission to just jump in and, and give some feedback. Right, right. I mean, if you consider the, uh, the other side of the coin of an engineer standing in front of a group of people with code on the screen and how many of us would mm-hmm. feel like, uh, you know, like uh, you shouldn't nest so many conditional loops, right? Like, or, you know, like we wouldn't have the right. vocabulary or, or know even where to start. Like, uh, that's right. Do you need performance or is this about style or, you know, that sort of thing. So, so that's interesting. So you have uh, put some thought into this and specifically in the context of your new startup, by the way, I wanted to ask you about that. You work for a company called range. You want to talk a little bit about what you're doing these days? Sure thing. Yeah. We build software that helps teams work better together. So uh, in the world of Agile, uh, people used to get together every day and talk about what they're planning to do and what and what they've done recently. It's a really good way to keep everyone in sync, but the world is not uh, in one place anymore. We're all distributed across different offices. We work across different teams. And even though startups were valuable or stand-ups were valuable, they just don't work anymore. So Range gives you a way to stay in sync across multiple offices, across multiple teams, which is a couple minutes a day. Cool, 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 cool. And you are focusing on some of the... I would say kind of the cultural issues a team needs 
before I think they could even get to using a piece of software like yours, right? Like, Yeah, well, one of the big things that we heard from distributed teams was that they really miss getting to know each other. <laughs> it's, it's, easy to, it's often easy to do when you're in the same office. You bump into each other, you talk about your weekend, you talk about other things, and you build that sense of trust over time. But on a distributed team, it's, you often feel like, well, we have 30 minutes on the call, we have to be very serious and then end the call. Um, and you never get any of that chance to learn who your coworkers are. And if and that then it's hard to develop trust and that's hard to act like a team. So we built a bunch of features in, including culture questions and sharings of moods and, and things like that, that um, we thought would help with this. And then as we talked to teams, they said it was their the most favorite thing about our product, actually. It was the the features that you built that help teams or or help in team building. Yes. Yeah. And and it's a sense of uh, trusting each other, feeling safe with each other. Yeah, yeah. We we actually looked at some of the, the research about how people build trust. And uh, psychologists all often need AB groups, right? So they, they needed some people that didn't know each other, and they needed some other people that trusted each other really well. But when you just have college sophomores, how do you how do you find those two groups? So I mean, the, the common joke is that all psychology is based on college sophomores because that's who they can study. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they the the procedure that they used to generate trust that they would base a bunch of other experiments on was. Basically, having two people ask each other questions that required greater and greater levels of um, vulnerability to answer those questions. So it might start out with, hey, how was your weekend? Um, and then it might end with like, what was the, or maybe in the middle, it's like, what's the scariest thing you've ever done in your life? And at the end, it's what's your greatest fear? Mm. You know, you probably can't meet someone on the street and say, what's your greatest fear? And get any anything close to a real answer. But if you consciously over the course of a couple hours or a couple months start to ratchet up the vulnerability required you build trust over time and you really get to know the people you work with and that's incredibly helpful for building a team because if you can't if you if you don't trust each other you can't ask for help and if you can't ask for help you're not a team ah interesting and and that actually does kind of frame up a conversation about critique in design uh, which is uh showing your work can be an incredibly vulnerable experience Absolutely. Yeah. I, I kind of got into this idea of thinking about critique because designers think about it so often. It's, it seems like a core part of what it is to be a designer, to go through the critique process. We, we talk about what it means. We, we think about building a culture of critique. And, but really, everyone in an organization can benefit from critique and does critique all the time. I mean, code reviews for engineers are essentially critiques. They're not standing in front of a room full of people that are you know, shouting back design feedback, but it is essentially a critique process. Um, and the same thing happens for product managers and, and executives. Everyone does feedback all the time, but we often don't do it particularly well. So I, I think it's something that the design community has to offer to the rest of the organizations they work with. Uh, it would be wonderful if we just had a script and we could just follow the, the bullet points, question one, <laughs> question two, question three, and at the end, the product is better. That uh, unfortunately never works. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. I've seen teams go with like a very, very set script, like here's exactly how we'll run a critique and the critique going completely off the rails. And I've seen the opposite too, where it's, it's, it's totally freeform and you don't really know what's happening, but somehow the critique feels very productive. And so I, that got me thinking about what, what, what are the problems that people have with critiques? And then like, like a doctor trying to diagnose a problem, like you have a headache. So we could give you an Advil, 
and that would probably stop the pain. But there's probably something deeper. Like maybe the issue is that you're hunching over your laptop <laughs> on, on like 10-hour flights, and that's causing tension in your neck. So there's these root issues that if you solve, actually make their critique much better. Um, and that's that's what I started to just kind of think about. Like, what are all the problems that exist in critique? And then can we boil those down to some root issues that managers or coaches or just individual designers could start to work on? Ooh, and I want to get into those too, but we're going to take a little break first and hear from one of our sponsors. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code PRESENTABLE at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site, and they do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your website, checking availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and often include several dependencies, such as contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. And it's not just about the whole site anymore. Look, let's be real. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects like 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 and outages every day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or managing complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so that you can fix the error before the downtime affects you. You don't want to get caught out when someone wants to access your website, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. So go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial and use code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. All right, so let's get back into uh, talking about some of the fundamental qualities of good uh, teams that have uh, that that can do really good critique. Um, I am. Uh, this was very front of mind, even just for me last night. Uh, I was watching Star Trek Discovery. Have you seen that? I have actually. Oh my yeah. God, it's so good. Uh, and, and <laughs> so I've been like kind of kind of binging through all of these episodes. Uh, but the, the the ship, of course, in this episode last night I was watching was about to be destroyed, uh, and probably it's, all, it's always about to I be know, destroyed. That's the that's the premise of the show is how are we going to get destroyed? Yeah. But this was also all sentient life uh, was about to be extinguished. So big deal. Uh, yeah. And the important people were all in the captain's room and they're trying to figure out what what to do. And somebody comes up with this crazy idea. And everybody objects, and then they say, "Come on, like I thought there were no bad ideas here." And the captain says, oh, "That's a lie. That that was definitely a bad idea." And <laughs> and it was and it was you know well uh, delivered lines and good timing, and it was really funny. But I but it struck me as also like, well, that is the the essence of critique, right? Just an idea completely shot down, but it entirely mm-hmm. depends on context. You could yes. have so much trust and candor and shared experience with somebody that they can look directly at you and go, nope, bad idea. As opposed right. to, you know, a new intern sitting around the table with all these experienced people and you look straight at them and go, nope, bad idea. What a difference. I know. I, I was reflecting on this last night uh, about my time at Google and the different contexts I was in where people were giving feedback. And, and in some contexts, it was incredibly aggressive yeah uh 
And it's, it was usually the groups of people that didn't really understand design, didn't understand the work, didn't, you know, maybe to understand the users that well. And you would put something up and I think you use this metaphor of like, uh, uh, releasing a clay and then shooting it down with a shotgun. Oh, yes. <laughs> it really did shooting, feel yes. like that at times. <laughs> uh, where you like toss up your beautiful design idea and it just gets, just gets shot down by 12 people around a table and you and you sulk out of the room, unsure what you should do next. Right. I had those experiences and, and that felt, you know, in, in the radical candor framework that felt like challenging directly without caring deeply. Maybe even worse than that because it's not entirely clear that if you, without a good understanding of design that you can actually challenge directly, you can just shoot something down. Right. But then on other, other sides, particularly maybe within the, the world of design, um, people were almost a little too polite. And, and I think those cultures are really focused around consensus and around caring. And it makes sense in, in an environment that might feel a little bit more hostile, that the birds of, the, birds of a feather, the people that are, oh, we're, we're all in the same family, we're all struggling with the same things. It's really a supportive community. And in those communities, it can, it's clear everyone cares deeply, but it's often a little difficult to challenge directly. Mm, the uh, artificial harmony, I think, is the phenomenon in the radical candor sort of framework, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And to, to, your, to your original point, one of the things that I noticed is that my, my design partner, uh, Michael Leggett, who I worked with a ton, we would, we would talk back and forth daily about design work, showing each other things. And people would, people would see our interactions and interpret it based on, on their context. So, you know, Michael might show me something and I'd say, that's fine. And people are like, why are you so mean to each other? Or, you know, Michael might see some of my work and say, these three things need, need work. But we had built up so much psychological safety and trust that those were all shortcuts. Um, that when someone said, that's, that's fine, what we, what we meant was, oh, like, they can't find any problems with my work. I'm doing great. Uh, or, or we could sh- we could shortcut right to the things that need to be talked about. And when people look at that from the world of artificial harmony, they might say, "Oh, you're being really harsh to each other." And if people look at that from the world of of like obnoxious aggression, mm. uh, they might say, "Oh, you're being too easy on each other." It, I just find it fascinating that the the context people have thinking about critique is, is like a lens on their world for how they see other people do critique. Right. Wow. That's yeah. That's powerful. It's it's as if you had. Uh a private kind of compression protocol that you were using and people couldn't kind of parse that from the outside. And yeah. And I think that's one of the difficult things about learning how to do critique. Cause when you walk into a room that has all of these fundamental foundations set up, it's sort of like magic. People can share quick ideas. Other people can really listen and incorporate those ideas. And you don't quite know why it works in that context, but not in other contexts. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's what kind of got me thinking about what are these foundations? And then if we wanted to work on them to get that critique magic, how do we do it? So I have a couple of questions about that because I have experienced that in uh, numerous times in my career of that magic kind of happening. The, the two questions I have are first, how do you bring somebody into that Right. Well, like what's the, for lack of a better word, initiation into this? Like, this is how we behave in this group. Um, come join us uh, without necessarily uh, diminishing what the group is doing. And then the second one is how do you maintain it over time? Right. The sort of yeah. constant reminders that we all trust each other. And because I don't think it's a like once you achieve it, then we've got it forever. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the start of things is psychological safety. It's that people feel safe enough to show their work. And so, I mean, this is one of the common issues that, that happen in design critiques is that people <laughs> often don't even want to come and show anything. I remember working at a, at a startup for a while where we had weekly meetings and the, you know, I would say, okay, let's, let's 
run through a couple designs and give each other feedback. And no one wanted to show anything despite, you know, me seeing them in, in sketch at the time it was sketch, uh-huh. uh, like all, all day working on things. And then at the end of the week, they didn't want to show anything. I wish I had known to focus on psychological safety as the core foundation of what might change that. But the way I approached it at the time was, um, was to, to set up a ritual. So we set up a daily ritual and, and that meant that it was a little bit lower, um, risk to show things. It was like, hey, what did you work on today? No big deal. And you might not have anything and that's fine. And then once we got that daily ritual going, we started to build habits about what it meant to do critique. We could reinforce purpose every time we got together. We could reinforce what it meant to to give feedback in a good way. We could talk about what might might make that feedback better. And eventually we we dropped back to a weekly cadence. But I um so I I think ritual like that is an incredibly powerful way to to start um to start a, a, a critique session with a small group of people. And then, like you said, you can, you can grow that, that group over time. You can invite someone else into that world. And if you have all those bits of the ritual set up right, like reinforcing the purpose every time you get together, uh, having roles set up, um, they'll start to understand what the right behavior is in that room over time. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. It's sort of a, a bunch of small little wins and low-stake conversations and, uh, as a way to build up the confidence over time. Yeah, there is a there's uh, the opposite of that is that strong desire to not show anything until it's quote unquote done. That's right, and so that's a uh, a way of sort of chipping away at that. I guess you would say. Yeah, I find it like really interesting the spectrum between, you know, on the one side there is the world of pitching, and your the purpose of a pitch is to convince other people your idea is good. Yeah. And there's lots of situations where you really do need to pitch something. Um, all sorts of designers that come from the world of agencies are very good at pitching. That's what's a core part of, part, of, part of your job. But the purpose of a pitch is very different from the purpose of a critique. The purpose of a critique is to use the knowledge around the room to help the designer make what they're making better. Very, very different purpose. And, and I, think, I think the middle ground, that, that kind of muddy middle, is, is a little bit dangerous. Mm where we're not really sure, are we here to approve something or are we here to help this person uh, make, make what they're making better fundamentally? The middle part, when you mix those two things together, it, 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 I always found it it's, makes the meeting much more difficult. So I like to have a very strong purpose of, are we you know, giving directive feedback and approving this, this particular course of action or is this a, is this a true critique? And I think as you get good at both of those ends of the spectrum, you can blend them better. But if you're having challenges, I, I would suggest like, making it very clear at the start of a meeting, which one of those two modes you're operating in. Even if you don't have control over the meeting, that's an interesting point, right? Like I have often talked to founders of companies of saying like, look, when you give, when you, when you, when you look at the product or, or some new initiative or something like that, make sure at the beginning of the meeting, you say, Hey, this is what kind of meeting it's going to be, right? Is it, yes. uh, the language I have used, um, is divergent or convergent, right? Like, do we want more ideas or do we want fewer ideas and converge on an approval. But I think even as an individual designer in whatever uh, organizational structure you're, in, you're, you're functioning in, the idea of like, hey, before I start, here's what I need, right? Here's what I want out of this conversation is inc- could be incredibly powerful. Yeah. I mean, it, that's a thing that I ask very often when people start showing work, particularly when they jump just right into the work is to yeah. pause and say, what kind of feedback would be helpful to you right now? Yeah. And usually, uh, 
that that helps shape what the conversation should be. So if you're a designer and you're presenting, you can just say that. And if you're someone that's that's trying to give feedback, you can you can ask that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's really good. Um, some other ground rules around that. I, for example, have often told people to before they give feedback, check whether it's an opinion or a request for understanding of decision making. And I found that 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 helps a lot. You know, like I said earlier, I don't like that purple is not a very good piece of feedback. But how are you using color here is a great question to get towards why something is purple. Yeah. And it, it, one of the things I, I found helpful actually is, you know, I think a lot about habits um, in that if you, if you do something enough times, your brain just sort of puts it on automatic and you don't have to do it. With, you don't have to do it with any effort anymore. Right. And that series of habits or effortless thought or effortless behavior is sort of the culture in, in some ways. It's just the stuff that we do without thinking about it. So one of the ways to, to change your critique is to enforce rules long enough that, um, that people start to build those habits that you want in critique and then remove the rules in order to get back the flexibility of a natural conversation. So one of my favorites is <laughs> for the first half of the time, people are only allowed to ask questions. Hmm. And then for the second half of time, they can offer suggestions. That can be frustrating if you're, if you're really good at, at critique, but it can help people rem- remember to do exactly what you said. Instead of saying, I don't like that purple, they can say, why did you choose purple? Or what's your use of color here? Yeah. Interesting. You use the word enforce. And I want to I I sort of talk about that a little bit because what you're doing is essentially in, in enforcing rules for how we're going to communicate and interact with each other. And in the yes. context of like psychological safety and candor, there's got to be an art to the person who has essentially got control of the meeting, not alienating anybody who's trying to get feedback and maybe not doing it in a sophisticated enough manner. Yeah. You know, one of the things, one of my takeaways from doing design sprints is, was how easy it is to, to sort of control a room and set the, set the rules of the game for the interaction that we're doing. You literally have to stand up and grab a whiteboard marker and you can usually, that's enough that ever, and, and start to explain to people what we're going to do here today. And that's usually enough to get everyone to, to understand. And there's a huge strong need for everyone to feel like they belong and feel like they're doing the right thing. And so you walk into a room and if you don't give anyone a rules, they'll all kind of try to construct this framework for well, what is the right thing? What should I be doing in this in this in this mode or maybe they won't think about that at all and then just kind of their mind will float around and just and just say whatever their mind lands on first so if you can give people a really clear structure of hey the purpose of this conversation is to do x Um, we're going to be looking at this this is the type of feedback that's helpful we're going to spend about 10 minutes doing this and 10 minutes doing that you'll have time to do this at the end all right let's start that just frames up everything so well so that people can give the type of feedback that you want and you're saying that uh, in the context of I am the designer standing at the front of the room, I am going to set the agenda and I'm going to try to control this room, right? Essentially, I think yeah. I think with a lot of experience, you can do that. I think it's much easier if you set specific roles in the room. So the ro- the yeah. roles I like are essentially scribe, so someone that takes notes. That's helpful because then the person receiving the feedback can really focus on active listening and clarifying questions. They don't have to be furiously yeah. writing down what the other people are saying. Um, the the presenter and their job is to set up the context so that everyone understands and then as as closely as possible show the designs in the context that people will be using it and then the people in the room they have a particular role as well they they should be asking questions to understand 
what's happening in this design and why, and they should be giving information and feedback, whether that's from their per- their personal experience or from data that they have from other places, that can help the person make a better product. That's great stuff. Yeah, those roles, I think, are really, really crucial. We used to do, uh, in our product reviews, uh, we would have two screens on the wall in the office or in the conference room we were in, one with uh, the presentation or the interface or the thing that was to be shown, and another mm-hmm. with the notes being taken live. And it would have an outline of an agenda beforehand and then just kind of filled in, but with everybody seeing it. And there were so many times when somebody would say, oh, wait, 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 that's not quite what I heard, you know? Yeah. So good. All right. Uh, one more break and we'll be right back to talk more about this. All right. Let's take another little break and talk about one of our good friends uh, who support the show and that is ExpressVPN. All right. Let's all do a little confession here. We all think we're immune to cybercrime. It's hard to imagine somebody trying to get a hold of our information, but the reality is stealing data from people like you and me using public Wi-Fi is an easy way for somebody with kind of, you know, unscrupulous morals to make a little bit of money. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your password and credit card numbers are vulnerable. There is something you can do to protect yourself, though, from cyber criminals, and that's start using a VPN. Specifically, start using ExpressVPN. It works by securing and anonymizing your internet browser. It encrypts your data, hides your public IP address, and it's really easy to use. They've got apps that run seamlessly in the background of your laptop, your tablet, your phone. So you can turn on ExpressVPN by launching the app, tapping the big button in the middle of the screen, and that's it. It just works. Then you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. So uh, there was a survey done by Tech Radar. They rated ExpressVPN the number one VPN service. Uh, and if you sign up now, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you really can't go wrong. I have been using it for a number of months now. I've been traveling all over recently. It's been uh, I've been in a bunch of airport lounges all over the world, it seems like. And uh, I, it just feels really good to open up my laptop, log onto the system, and pop on uh, ExpressVPN knowing that no matter what I'm doing, nobody else is going to be looking at my uh, my packets flying around. It really does give me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, I can, you know, I can log on to my bank, get some stuff done while I'm traveling and not worry at all about it. Um, look, it, it only costs about seven. It's less than $7 a month. You get the same level of protection that I have using express VPN. If you ever use public Wi-Fi, want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need a VPN. So go to expressvpn.com slash presentable to learn more. You can find out how to get three free months uh, at expressvpn.com slash presentable. Uh, you buy a one-year package, three months free. So that's expressvpn.com slash presentable, three months free. Thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. I want to bring us back to psychological safety again um, uh, and talk about some, let's just try to find some techniques for how we build that in the team. How do we build this understanding of, of candor, of, uh, of giving difficult feedback uh, uh, without sort of sugarcoating it or without you know, damaging the relationships? All of those sorts of things. You've been thinking a lot about teams, right? So, um, so how do we start to build this? One of my favorite techniques is actually... Um to take a couple minutes at the start of the meeting to do a check-in round. And that's just everyone go around the room and say a few words about how you are right now, how you're showing up, what's your lens on the world. 
it's sometimes easier to start with a question like, how was your weekend? Or start with a like an icebreaker question that, that people can just answer. But over time, I, just giving people a moment to reflect on how they're showing up is is really helpful. So for example, ours will sometimes sound like, and I'll say, I just got back from my honeymoon and like, I'm in a great mood. And then someone else might say, you know, my daughter was up all night. I'm super sleep deprived. And that's, that's really helpful to know because the way, the way that we're showing up will affect how we behave. And if, and if I'm grumpy towards someone and they, they might think they did something wrong, but it might just be that I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so uh, doing that every Doing that every day is sort of like, you know, those big team building offsites that people will do. Oh, <laughs> It'll yeah. take like two or three days to go and really get to know your coworkers. That's fine. But actually, I think it works much better to just spend a couple minutes every time you get together to get to know your coworkers. And then you're sort of integrating that sense of what it means to be, um, to be a team. You're integrating it in, into your workflow. So you're, you're knowing people every day. And knowing them, right, is, is really like remembering they are people first and try to build a bit of empathy for everybody around the table. Yeah, that's right. It's so, I mean, it's so easy, particularly on distributed teams or when you're working remotely to start to see other people as sort of cogs in a machine. Like you need to do this work and get it, get it done and it needs to look good. And, but fundamentally we're all, we're all human beings. And the more deeply we care about each other, the easier it is to be able to give and and get feedback. And so that's sort of the, the fundamental part of what it what it means to be a team. So we focus on that a lot here at Range, and we we built that into our product as well. The idea of genuinely this terror of not wanting to say something stupid, right? Yeah. Like that's I yeah. think like that's the most like I have I have uh, kids, and they will ask me any question, and they mm-hmm. do not care. like the what they're, you know the re- response would be like I'm a kid, how am I supposed to know, right? Like. Um, as opposed to coming into some environment where it feels like everybody has all these acronyms and they know everything. And the last thing I want to do is say something stupid or, or, right. or some th- something that make, make me sound stupid. Right. Um, and I think this idea of the, um, uh, that little check-in starts to chip away at that in a way of like, my check-in could be like, Hmm, kind of first time here, a little nervous, you know, and, and, and right. let it be that. Uh, I also think, uh, going around the table like that, uh, it, which is something that we do in our partner meetings at True, like we 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 start things off with just that little daily check in. It also lets you hear your voice be heard. I have already like broken the seal of uh, saying something in this meeting. You know, I'm not I'm not just going to like sit on the sidelines and uh, speak when spoken to. Yes, that's absolutely true. The, when you when you speak early on earlier on in a meeting, you're much more likely to speak again. Yeah. So it's actually an interesting way to make your meetings more inclusive. And you guys have built a tool to help us do this. This is great. I was looking through it. It's called Icebreaker. It's just a a website uh, where you just have a whole bunch of questions to get started with. Yeah. I mean, we have these questions in our product at Range, and um, Mm. they're one of the people's most favorite thing about our our product. So we decided to to put them out there for free for anyone to use. So uh, yeah, it's icebreaker.range.co. And I think there's maybe over over 200 questions in there. They're categorized into easy, medium, and hard. So I'd suggest starting with easy, no matter how yeah. how how well you think you know your team. There's some pretty pretty serious ones in the hard category, and just pick one and then go around the table and all have a chance to answer. And that and that would that would be a great way to start a check in before a meeting. I found I found something that I like. Here's an easy one. Uh, when looking for something at the store, do you ask somebody uh, or do you try to find it yourself? 
What a great, <laughs> great like. Um, I think everybody would be feel, would feel comfortable asking, uh, answering that question around the team, right? Like, um, right. and lead and lead to a little levity probably as well, huh? Right, and it reveals a little something about maybe your personality or how you approach life. I liked how the questions got as it got a little more difficult. They got a little more reflective on the team itself. Yeah. Uh, name three things that you and your team have in common. That's a medium one, right? Which is, yeah, you know, that could be sort of, I'm sharing a bit about myself, but also like I'm building a little bond with you people, that kind of thing. It's so often that you get into situations where people feel like the only thing between them and the other people on their team is differences. Uh, and so just taking a moment to reflect on what do we have in common? Oh, we're, we all care about this product that we're building. We all are passionate about this thing. We, we're all really good at our jobs. Uh, that can just help you feel more like a team. So that, that's why the question like that is in there. And then there's a, uh, here's a picking one from the hard category. What was the last team decision that felt like it took too long? And why did it take so long? And now, like, I feel like th- right. we're not just starting the meeting. We are, we're now, we're in a, uh, a postmortem or something, right? <laughs> One of the things that we do in our product is we, we lead up to those really hard questions over a series of weeks. Yeah. So we, we might start to ask about, hey, what's the most thrilling thing you've ever done? Right? That's a pretty easy thing. Maybe you went skydiving. For me, it would be some sailing trip that went, went kind of to fiasco. But then later in the week, we might start to ask about um, what's something that you've, uh, a risk that you took at work that paid off. And then maybe a week later, we'd start to ask you about how you might feel more safe to take risks at, at work. And you probably can't jump right into that last question, but once you get people in the ballpark of, of thinking about that type of, of work, then you can approach those harder questions. So that's not an in, in, in icebreaker, but that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Um, if I was working with a, a design team, I might take a topic like that, and then during the check-ins, you know, sort of ratchet up, get people to think about it in a safe way before really approaching uh, the topic in more depth. And that's exactly what user researchers do who are really good. Um, so it's no surprise this works. Mm, interesting. This sort of like progressively building a conversation with a uh, person who is in for user research until they feel more more comfortable sharing really what their, what their wants and needs are. Exactly, yeah. Oh, good. Um, this last bit then uh, is this notion of having a, a, a group of people around a table working together all with a mindset of growth as opposed to a fixed mindset. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed the, the book growth mindset mm-hmm. and it's helped me think a little bit about my, my, my own career and, um, and, and what it means to be a designer and continue to grow. Uh, I, I remember working um, with this designer at a, at a startup who was just the defiant in, in uh, critique sessions that, you know, and, and eventually I pulled him aside and I said, well, what, what is going on here? And he said, these other designers are not as good designers as me, and I, do, I don't want to hear their feedback. Uh, it was pretty rough. Yeah. And, uh, and it sort of triggered me thinking, maybe this person has a very fixed mindset that there are certain levels of designer. He's a good one. These other people are not as good. And that's how it will be forever. Uh, and thus, I don't need to listen to them. So I started a little conversation with him about where, where he wants to be in his career and sort of started to get him to think a little bit more about that. I, I wanted to see if I could open up that, open up that door to growth. And in, in this particular case, I, like, I couldn't get that door open. I couldn't get him to think about how we wanted to change and grow as an individual. And so un- unfortunately, just 
ended up not working out on the team. But I think that like that would be the window to to fix that behavior. To say like if you can see where you want to grow and get better, then all of a sudden like the people around you can help you get there through critique and vice um, and vice versa. That's right. If that's you right. have a, uh, a desire to growth, uh, f- a desire for growth, why wouldn't they? Right. Right. Exactly. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think that's like when when people are being defensive in d- design reviews, or if they're being avoidant, like someone will offer feedback and they just won't won't do anything with it. I think often the 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 kind of foundation of what's going on going wrong there is something around growth mindset. Do people really feel like they can grow as a designer? Do they feel like the people around them can help them grow? Do they feel like they're growing over time? Um, and if you start to focus on those aspects of of what work life is, then the critique starts to fit into that worldview quite well. Yeah, that's great. It can also sort of frame up how a team perceives the work, right? Like the, the notion that uh, the work can always be better and that we're never really done on it, as opposed to this like big milestone of like, this project is either going to succeed or fail and then we'll go on to the next one. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is great stuff. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Brayden. Um, let's see, we've got you, uh, at range.co. Is that right? That's where people can find out not only about the product, but there's a ton of writing you've, you, uh, and the team have done. Yeah. We write a lot about psychological safety and what it means to be a team and, and how to build a great team. There's just a bunch of blog articles there about that. Um, Good. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you are Coitz uh, over on Twitter, K-O-W-I-T-Z. Yes, I'm on Twitter a ton. So if anyone wants to reach me, that's probably the best way. Awesome. Uh, Braden, thanks so much for being on the program. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.